You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we go back to the Business Capital and Exit Strategy Summit. This is panel three from the event where Naveen, who is the co-founder and CEO of WorkWise, moderated a panel which consisted of Marcel Fitzer, who's a wealth manager, Jerome Fogel, who's a mergers and acquisitions attorney, and myself, Sean Flynn, who's a mid-market investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital, and secondaries. Please contact me if you have any questions on any of those. You can connect with me through my LinkedIn, where we dive into questions brought on by the audience and our amazing moderator. We cover questions such as, when should you talk to a wealth advisor in a merger or acquisition? How do lawyers kill or not kill deals? Why is it important to know the risk tolerance of everyone on your team? When should one go about organizing and finding all the key players for their mergers and acquisition team? What role do experts play in the mental wellness of the seller? And much more. This panel, I'm going to tell you right now, the sound quality is awful. I mean that. It literally is I'm embarrassed to produce it and send it out, but the content itself is amazing. You are going to hear people walk around the background. You are going to hear people opening up soda cans, coughing, talking. It's not pleasant. But once again, the content was amazing, so I felt it was worth releasing to our audience. Now with that, let's begin this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. And thank you everyone for being here. Uh, we've got the subject of exits, such a big part of the process, you know, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And that so few entrepreneurs go through it. So I wanted to do a little kind of audience quiz, if you don't mind, before we kick off. How many people here have sold a business? Just put your hand up. And how many people are planning on selling a business at some point in the future? So that's a good amount, actually. That's a really good amount. Well, look, we're going to we'll go over to the panel. We'll start with the question. So we're going to start with Sean, obviously. As our resident investment banker, you put the process into exit process. So I thought you could perhaps give an overview of what that means to the group here. All right, and thank you for calling me first. I was kind of actually hoping I'd take a break on this. And that's never, this is all your idea, all your fault. All right, so with that, so think of the exit process. And if anyone wants to stop me and, and add information, please go ahead. But in the simplest, let's break it down, I guess, into kind of three parts. You have the pre-marketing, the marketing, and the negotiation part. So think of the pre-marketing as you're getting your, your data together, you're getting all the materials together, and you're creating the marketing. You're creating maybe a blind profile, which is enough information in your company to get people excited, but it doesn't tell them you know, the name of the company is. They can't really say specific, we know who this company is. And there's many reasons for that. Also, the other market material would be the confidential information memorandum, this document, you know, maybe it's 30 pages, maybe it's 60 pages, but it's a pretty good document built on all the information in the data room that, you know, answers the bulk of questions anyone would have. They wouldn't get that until they sign an NDA, but, you know, that material is being built out. That's the pre-market. 
Then the marketing is you're going out, you, you have your buyers list that you discovered based on their investment thesis. You go, hey, these people like to buy companies and write checks for companies in this sector, this size, doing this, whatever it is. You're marketing to them and you're telling them about this company that you're representing. And then after that, indication of interest, maybe after that, or after that, a letter of intent, and then you pick your dance partner, you pick that one, you go forward to that. The next part, which we're gonna to call that due diligence phase, that phase three is you go through that process and hopefully at the very end, money's transferred, ownership transferred, everything, and people are happy and they're, you know, being on panels on events like this. So uh, that's kind of the, the process of the three steps. So pre-marketed, marketed, negotiation, sales. In that show. You can break it down further if you want. Beautifully done. Right. So what we're going to do on this panel is kind of dip into each aspect that Sean has just outlined there. So let's start with in terms of right at the start of the process. At what point, and Marcel, I'm going to ask you this at what point, given your wealth manager, you probably have very long-term relationships with your clients, at what point does the discussion come up about selling the business? Yeah. Can everybody hear me? Yeah. Yeah, typically it, it starts pretty early when the owner kind of starts thinking, okay, what's what's kind of a succession plan? What am I going to do with the business? Who's taking over? And many people probably know the show Succession on HBO. It, it, it can get very, very ugly if the, the family members don't agree, uh, especially tied in at family organizations for generations. So, so it's really important to set expectations for everyone in the family. Having meetings and ha bringing in an outside advisor actually helps. Having family counsel really talking about you know who's going to take over the company, who's going to be staying involved with the company, who gets how much money after the exit. So, so having somebody outside is, is important because there's no bias. I, I've been a bunch of these meetings, and the first meeting is just shouting everywhere for hours, and nobody's on, on the same page, uh, crying even. Uh, second meeting, it gets a little better. People calm down and it's more about the, the, the numbers. And the third meeting gets better. But as you can imagine, this never really stops, right? But the succession plan is really important. It can, it's probably you know very painful for the bankers and the lawyers, right? Because they can't really do their work if people can't agree on the succession plan. So I think it's important, this is a really important start. And then also when you look at, when you take a step back, when you look at the, the deal makers really, they, it's about the corporate, the business balance sheet. When you look at from a wealth management perspective, typically there's a trust and sailor, CPA, wealth manager, that's your personal balance sheet, right? So those are the two things. And I think from a wealth management perspective, we, we got to kind of project, okay, after the sale, there's no more business balance sheet, really. It's a personal balance sheet. How much money do you need? What, what are you going to do with all that money? Are you going to buy boats or luxury items or you know, are you going to retire? You want to buy another business. So when you do this cash flow analysis, you can kind of come back with a number and kind of put like an exit number in, in or a range of exit numbers in, in the business owner's bed, just so then the bankers and the lawyers come in and this is just not a good number. But it's, it's kind of a work in progress, right? It takes a while. And I think the business owners need to take care of the balance sheet, personal balance sheet, just as good as they do of that corporate balance sheet. So at the point the decision is taken then, and uh, Jerome, I'm going to put this one on you. Um, you, said, you mentioned an advisory team. So what constitutes that advisory team? And, and then what's important for us? Is it simply technical qualities or is there more to it? That's a great question. And I think that think of yourself as being on now a part of the team. So you're an athlete now. You, you need a team around you. you can't, you're not going to get the ball in the end zone by yourself. 
So you first off, obviously, the wealth management side is a big piece. Trying to the personal liquidity and that you're about to experience. That's number one. And then on the investment banking side, you need somebody who's going to negotiate with the buyer, whether it's a PE firm or it's a strategic or, you know, whatever it is, but somebody who understands how to negotiate the deal, how to present the deal, understands also your objectives. Sometimes it's not money. Sometimes you care about the legacy, you care about your employees, you, you, or maybe you don't want anything to do with the business at all. I had one entrepreneur felt like after he sold the company, it was, he had to stay on for another, I think six months to a year. And he felt like he was living in, his, his wife got remarried, he was living in the house. That's what he felt like, right? So, so you need an investment who understands your objectives. You need an attorney who is going to understand your risk tolerance, your appetite for risk. It's very important that, that they understand what your goals are. I think on top of that, you, you know, state planning is going to come into play here. You also, it's really important the accounting team because there's going to be gap and non-gap issues that are going to be come up in the asset purchase agreement and you need someone to do that. So it's, it's very, it's, it's technical, but it's also relational and you need a team that can understand you and support you. And if you surround yourself with the right people, you can get to that, you know, end goal. So Sean, I'd love to get you all view on the same question. I guess you've got, there's a lot of people involved in that. A lot of experts, a lot of people with different opinions, you know, egos might get involved. How, do you appoint a leader or do you as the seller control those groups of people? Uh, I mean, the investment banker should kind of have that role of managing the whole process and managing everyone involved. But there's a couple things that I think we might want to dive a little deeper in. And you mentioned the risk appetite of the attorneys and the people involved. And I mean, that's really, it's a key to a lot of the process because we have maybe you hear that term, you know, lawyers kill deals. Yes. You, you know, does the lawyer match up with the appetite risk of the person selling? Does the does everyone on the team kind of? I mean, how far in advance have the conversation started where people know everyone there versus at the last minute just throwing people together because this was my cousin's friend and this is someone that my wife's brother knows or something like that so i think it's really important to have these conversations way before the process starts and get your team as early on day one as possible so where would that, i'm interested now where would a difference in risk tolerance manifest itself as a problem in the process with the lawyer okay so i'm a deal maker not a deal killer but <laughs> but I, I will say that sometimes as attorneys we can get caught up the law kind of running the deal versus the, the seller and the seller's goals running the deal. And so what I use, I use a green light, yellow light, red light with clients. I say, okay, so green light means you want to do this no matter what. You just want me to help you make this deal happen. And sometimes they can be health issues that could be, be part of this. There could be a financial precipice coming on the other side of this. There's myriad factors. A yellow light would mean, I'm not really sure. I Help me vet this properly. And red light is, I have some serious concerns. Just you know, confirm that for me or not. And so I think it's really simple for me, green, yellow, red, and I ask clients, where is this deal for you? And so once, once I figure that out, I don't understand yeah. what, what they really need at that point. Yeah. 
and often I've seen tension in kind of the reps and warranties process. So I, I think if if you've got a strategic RP firm that's a buyer, you're going to have a sophisticated law firm on the other end. What that means is you're going to be facing an onslaught of due diligence you've never experienced in your life. And part of that, part of the lawyer's job is to help you manage that. So there's going to be pages of reps and warranties that are kind of standard in their deal. And what you have to do is tailor each one and figure out, okay, this is cybersecurity and privacy really an issue? And if so, let's go through it. And, and then you can have it basically disclosure schedules where you can say, hey, you know, we actually are not GDPR compliant or we are not aware or whatever it is. And typically if the buyer wants to do the deal, they'll, you know, they'll cross it off. So you really just have to go through each one and, and figure out. I think the financial is a big piece because if the deal blows up, the buyer is going to look for something to hang their hat on and that financial would be a place to go. So I think you have to be very scrupulous about financials. That's the third rail for me. But but overall, you just have to go through the reps and warranties and figure out. And also, rep and warranty insurance is an option. You know, granted, only 10% of those things really pay out. It's a half a percent to 1% of the deal of the premium. So it's pricey, right? But um, if the deal is 20 million enterprise value or more, you can consider that as, as a real option. Although with compressed deal times nowadays, it's harder for rep and warranty insurance. Yeah, okay. So I'm gonna get it back a little bit. So we've done the pre-marketing. We're now at the point we're ready to market. So in terms of approaching by identifying and approaching buyers, and I'll probably throw this one short, what is your preferred approach to that? I've seen kind of rifle shot type situations where, you know, you, you know, perhaps the manager you probably see is Marcel, the owners of the business understand who the buyer is. Or I've seen very wide marketing programs. Do you have a particular preference? Well, I mean, think of it this way, if you go just to a narrow select group. How do you know there's not someone that no one's even thought about that couldn't have the best offer for this company? Now, when you go out broad, there's less like less likely you're leaving money on the table because you've gone to such a huge market, you uncovered, you know, moved every stone, you, you talked to this person. Because so many times it's the people that even the seller had no idea that will make that offer. And as the investment bank, we have a research team that's going out and that's looking at the databases that, that other people also have, but you know, we have our personal networks. We are attending events like this where we're networking, we're hearing things. And you know, we're knowing what's going on in the market. So going broad and even when you you're doing your outreach, there's definitely times when people you've sent a blind pro profile to will go, hey, this actually isn't a fit for me, but is it okay if I forward this along to someone who I think it might be a good fit for? Or, hey, I'm no longer actually at this firm, I'm at another one, and that's great. We, we just you know, raised capital, and this is actually what we're looking for. And you have no idea, but by going broad, this stuff happens. And so once we've got our buyer list, and Marcel, I'm going to assume, so I think you'll have an interesting perspective on this, given that you'll be working as well on the web mind yourself. I think that's more a question for the deal folks over there. I, I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, from a wealth management perspective, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I don't know. I just thought it'd be quite interesting if, if you ever get pulled into that type of conversation, just because you've known them for so long and you've had that kind of relationship. It's more about complaining and keeping them. Really, yeah. It's it's you know you start the pre-planning process and the deal makers come in. I get kind of removed, but I just keep people kind of level headed yeah. outside. Sure. You know,
So Jerome, you probably guess this. Quick one. answer. Yeah. I want the seller to shake the buyer's hand. Even in COVID, I've, for the last two years, have that face-to-face -face meeting, build that relational capital because you'll need it later on in the deal. So I think that's really important to start off early. Because some buyers will say, listen, I'm not comfortable submitting an IOI until I actually have a management call with the seller. I'm not comfortable doing this until... And then there's that dance, it's okay. You know, is it time for the, the management team to meet the potential buyer? Where, how much background have we done on this buyer? Are they a serious buyer or are they just someone looking to get more information on, on the, who the seller is? So it, it is case by case basis, but in reality, I mean, you want it when the introduction is there for the seller to be well prepared and prepped and know in advance what the conversation is going to be like. We've already talked to the potential buyer. This is the area that they're interested in learning more about. You know, from our conversation, they're really asking questions about this. Talk to the seller here. This is what this is the layout for the meeting. Prep. Everyone's ready. Let's just have a conversation and then you know, hopefully crack a few jokes and everyone gets along really well because like Rome said, if at day one they're liking everyone. Later on during the due diligence, when those questions come, it feels like, wait, they're really eating at my soul. It's, well, you know, they're still good people. Everyone got along. Let's just take a breath. You know, they're not attacking you. They're just trying to find out more. And, you know, because that goodwill is built early, you're able to, to get over some of these rocky parts. So chemistry is important. Uh, during COVID, I saw transactions completed over Zoom. The management of roadshows, roadshows happen over Zoom. What's your perspective on that? Suboptimal or can it be done? It can definitely be done. And actually, as weird as it sounds, I, I kind of think it will be, I think it'll stay moving forward in the sense of, okay, you have that one in first meeting, you know, at the very beginning, everyone gets along. And then so much work can be done over Zoom. And yes, it does vary a lot who the people are involved. If it's that more traditional, I want to shake your hand, look you in the eye, or it's more just, you know, give me the numbers, we'll, we'll we can do this over Zoom. But I, I do think that the days of flying back and forth, I don't think it's going to be there like before. Oh, I, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on that, to be honest. I, I would agree. I think in, in my business too, I, people don't want to meet with you anymore that much. They are busy traveling a lot, right? And, and, have different residences, which is also a tool of pre-transaction planning, actually. actually. When you look at California, you have higher state income tax, you have Texas, so it's, there's a big part as well. So, so, so I think, you know, it, it's important to meet a, someone in person the first meeting and then just go with the flow, really. Yeah. It's really important that you have that meeting in the beginning. It's all about trust, and it's really tough to really establish trust all on its own. So you mentioned that, you know, building up that chemistry and goodwill for when the questions get asked. So let's talk due diligence. It can be incredibly painful for lots of people, particularly if you're a very sophisticated buyer or an institutional buyer. What advice do you give to business owners, sellers of businesses on how to handle that process and what to demand from the buyer in terms of their approach to the process? That's it. Yeah, Joe, I want to go to Sorry, Sean, you can go. I guess I'll just add one little sentence and then I'll let you guys take it from here. But I think a lot of it is 
talking to that seller on day one when we're building out the data room and they're fighting back and saying, why do I need this? And we go, listen, it's going to be asked later. Get it in now. And just start drilling all those questions on day one. And you'd be surprised how much pushback there is. And just, oh, you, you know, it's not a big deal. So like, no, it's, it's a big deal. It's going to come up later. And if it's not there now, it, you know, maybe it pushes things back a week or two weeks later. And, you know, we just... So when you're talking to that investment banker or your team and they're saying, in this data, data room, you should have all this information, give it to them and more. Don't fight on, on all these, on every item, but that will prepare you for the due diligence. I would say this too, exactly right. I think the, the first thing is the pre-planning. So if I can get to them early, we have, I think, 70 factors. If anyone wants to email me, I'll send you the list of what we use. But there's like 70 things that we basically look at. And one, first IP, we want all the consents, even things that seem meaningless, copyright consents on your website, the buyer's gonna be all over those things. So that's that's like an example. Um, now, obviously cybersecurity is huge. I was on a lawyer call with 30 other attorneys in our team from the other side, and we went through, I think, you know, 50 different items, and it was a brutal call. but. It was really kind of the final kind of last sweep. So you just really encourage, I, I just encourage the clients, we're being forthright, we're putting everything out there. At the same time, you know, there's some stuff that may just not be relevant and that we need to push back on. So I think there's times when the buyer's over diligencing things, especially if there's juniors on the deal who don't really understand real world scenarios and you know they're up at two in the morning and you know they may not be thinking clearly so you kind of have to push back sometimes but i guess the short answer is pre-diligence planning is one two is uh you know being prepared and, and three is pushing back when necessary but regardless it's always going to be painful and it's just i like how you mentioned 70 items ours is 142 for the initial ask and then after that, based on what's submitted, then we have follow-up and everything. So, yeah, you just said 70, I was like, oh, that's not there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's 70 items, so How each one of those could be 10 or something. What's great? With follow-up question. Yeah, sure. How long should you give the buyer to assess the business and complete their due diligence? I mean, they're, they're going to ask for it in advance with when they submit their letter of intent. They're going to say, we're expecting 60 days, we're expecting 90 days work. And you know, the seller might fight back and go, this is an asset purchase, this should be quick, it should be this. And you know, that could be one of the terms of picking this potential buyer over this other buyer. You could go back and go, listen, the seller really wants to sell this quickly. Other people are saying a shorter amount of due diligence. Can you speak your job? What's the process? Why, why is yours what it is? is it, is it because you have to go out and raise the capital? Do you have the capital or not? So there's a lot of questions that come up when you get that LOI and you, you see the due diligence time that they're asking for. And you can always ask them questions, you know, what is this process that you're doing? Why is it taking so long for this deal? And with that, can I ask the other guys in the panel that I own that. I'll say one quick thing. Sometimes they'll the buyer there may be a disconnect between the investment banker and the law firm so it's important right away to make sure that because you could have one data room for the investment banker and then when the law firm comes in they want a totally different data room like guys we just we just spent hours and hours doing this so 
We, I think it's early on trying to make sure that the buyer and everyone's all synced up so that you're not doing twice the work. I think that can save some time. Just one point that. Right, so we've now hit the point where we're entering negotiations and Marcel and determined to ask you a question. So most business owners are very confident and, uh, and are quite often very good negotiators. In your experience, when you see your clients sell businesses, how often do they get involved in the negotiations with the buyer? And should they, in your opinion? Well, they want to, right? You know, as a business owner, you've created a business over decades. You've done it all yourself. You've worked really, really hard. And now it's time to sell this business that you worked so hard for. So emotions are high, right? And, and emotions can kill it. And it makes it tough for the deal makers to, to make it happen. So as much as they want to get involved, it's really important to keep them level it and let the experts do their job, right? We're, we're all here for a reason. We're trying to make this deal happen. And you walk away with the most money, really. So, but it comes up all the time, I think. It's, it's really important to, to pull, pull owners back. And that's typically my job or another you know, personal advisor's job yeah. to really pull that back so that the deal makers can do their, do their job. Do you want to look at your I think one piece of advice I always have for sellers is take an afternoon and read the APA, read the deal docs. And every time I've done that, I have to think. Just because, not that you have to understand everything, but that you've read it through, it's your business, you spent years building it, you should take the afternoon off and read it so you know what's in it. And then that way we can have an intelligent conversation and you may see things that I might miss. So I think. That's one thing that I have held to, and I just encourage you as a seller, just read the docs, take an afternoon off, and you may have some insight to share, or you'll at least know what we're talking about. And, and so that's one piece of advice that I always say. Can I add to that one? So one thing that Marcel was talking about was emotions. And actually, I think that's kind of the biggest role of the service providers and the people on the team working the deal is just keeping conversations going, keeping emotions in check, because throughout this process, there's so many ups and downs. You can get in on it, you know, oh, I'm going to sell my business, you know, I'm building this data room, I'm going out, all oh, the marketing, maybe the marketing push you are not getting all those responses back on day one, and then you're feeling depressed, and then one comes in, you're feeling good, but it's not where you want, you're having these ups and downs. And then there's outside parties involved in these ups and downs, kind of pushing in directions. You know, you'll have these conversations. And what, what's going on today? You know, on that phone call, the man, you are the, oh, this thing happened with my wife. She's already spending the money. We haven't sold the company, but she's already purchased all these items. And we're having these arguments like, okay, well, let's just calm down. Let's keep moving forward. Or, you know, there's so many outside things that happen in these transactions that affect people's emotions during it. And then the transactions themselves are very emotional because it's not a 30 day process from start to end. I mean, you're talking six to nine months where you're also still running that business while this is going on. So you're being torn in so many directions that, you know, sometimes it's just, just sell it today. No, 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 no. We're running a process. This is the process. We talked about it on day one. We already kind of wrote out expectations. We talked to Rod and Ben on valuations, and we have that nice little range. You know, we'll dump with that nice little range. All right. We we talked to all the, the guys on that second panel, Go Connor, with all your advice on capital raise and all that good stuff. We're in a great position. We're selling this company. I, I tried to plug everyone in here. <laughs> <laughs>
And, and you know, and I know everyone's going to stick around for ice cream and panel number four to find out about that technology for your companies. But you know, this whole process, there's so much going on, pulling you in so many ways that keep that level head and your emotions in check and making sure that you're really connected with your legal team, your wealth advisors, and those conversations are so huge. I once had a CEO buy a ranch in South Africa on two giraffes 30 days before the deal closed. Two giraffes. And thankfully the deal did close and then I proceeded to get a succession of selfies of a man with his giraffes for about six months afterwards. So you mentioned valuation and this is where negotiations can get a bit touchy. Should you be expecting a last minute price chip from the buyer and how do you push back against that? once you're so heavily into the process. Yeah, Jerome, that's a problem for you, isn't it? Okay, I think that the sophisticated buyers find creative ways to do this. One way they can do this is, especially if the, mar if the market is, if they be perceived to be in a decline, they'll, they'll draw out the diligence process, the drafting process, Oh, just so they can see the next quarter of the bills. And so kind of this can keep dragging on to, to try to retread and renegotiate the deal. I think that's the number one thing that I see is, is trying to, to do that. That's, and I think the combat that you use ex exclusivity arrangements. That said, um, you know, there are going to be discussions in terms of operating cash and, the way it was calculated, there's going to be questions on inventory and what's acceptable. So there's going to be a lot of push and pull there. I think the the escrow holdbacks is a is a way where you have to negotiate. But but I think if as a seller you know what you're worth and you know what your walk away point is, you you won't be able to fall under pressure. However, if you let the company kind of deteriorate and there's performance drag while the deal's going on, you're going to be in a harder position, I think some buyers take advantage of that. You're not aware of it. And I also think running, uh, the question before about that process where it's narrow and broad, running that broad process in advance and getting multiple LOIs, so at least you have that confidence that there's other things to fall back on. I think that's huge for that seller just to go, this isn't my only dance partner. Actually, there's a lot of others that, you know, waiting around at the bar that I can go talk to. Excellent. So we got the deal done. So this is another one for myself. What post-event planning do you put in place for the point where all the money lands and people start buying giraffes? <laughs> or elephants, or whatever they like to buy. Typically big things. Well, when, when you look at it, there's two, two sides to transaction. It's pre-transaction, we kind of discussed a little bit, but that's when the, the structuring of the assets really, really start. You have an asset that has a low cost basis in your business. And so there's why, you know, you start a conversation with the business owner, what do you want to do with the money? You know, how do you, do you want to give it to your children? How many children do you have, grandchildren? And also, are you charitably inclined? You want to give some money to charity? So, so talking about the goals pre-transaction is important. And then trust and state lawyers and wealth managers set up the structure of getting to those goals. And then once the transaction happens, then the cash and its post-transaction plan. And then the real job for us as wealth managers starts like, okay, we established these goals. We set up these different structures, trust structures, charitable trust structures, maybe generation uh, and trusts. And then it's really our job to how do we get to those goals? And, and as you all know, the market is down a lot, a lot of volatility. These things are important for us to, to make sure the business owner is still on track to get those goals. And 
you know, it's hard in a, in a market like that, but you got to keep your, your head cool. And and we made a plan, which is going to stick to it and just kind of make small adjustments to it. So it's a, it's, it's a long story short, it's a pre-transaction process to set up the goals and the structure. Post-transaction is really, you establish your wealth, you have all your wealth now protected and move it to your, create a legacy and, and give it to the next generation. Yeah. Well, I think we can probably make some questions from the audience. I don't know if we have the... Uh... Microphone ready to roll. Oh, wonderful. So, if anyone's got any questions, I want to share an experience of a business they've sold or a process they've been involved in. We'd, we'd love to hear that too. But yeah, one of the things that we're seeing on a transaction by transaction basis, particularly in light of some of the changes in the tax law, particularly, particularly California sales tax on assets and asset yield, um, it's super important that somebody looking to sell their business engages with a wealth manager. So, like, what advice would you have for professionals that are more on the banking or legal side when their client has this plan that isn't really a plan and might have, you know, maybe not the best wealth manager there? Like, how do you how do you engage with them on that? Or because it's not really our place to question that. But what would you suggest we do to introduce them to maybe better uh, better advisors? Good question, and I feel like there's a lot of wealth managers out there. Everybody knows one, right? Are they good or bad? You don't know yet. Um, but I think just bringing it up, it never hurts to have another set of eyes, right? At least, you know, if the relationship is really strong, and, you know, at least we can come in and just give another perspective that the client then can take to other wealth advisor. You know, it, it, everybody has kind of their skill set. And a lot of times you're with a local advisor and you kind of just outgrow them because you have a big transaction going on. So I think there's a delicate way to do so without kind of ruining that relationship, but just bring it up. Hey, why don't you talk to this guy or two other advisors, bring in some other perspectives. You know, you could still keep the money with your friend, but at the end of the day, friendships are important. And But the most important thing is to get the most after tax, really, right? Have the right plan in place, general giving, and sometimes, you know, sometimes people just outgrow their advisor, right? And but it's a delicate process, yeah. I mean, particularly when it's a, when this is usually the largest transaction that they've done, and typically is maybe you only get an opportunity to sell a business a couple of times in a lifetime, you know. And so, uh, yeah, I think that's a good a good rule of thumb. Just to say, hey, I love that your brother from Schwab is managing all your money, but maybe maybe talking to you. Yeah, and, and, and like you said, it's the, the the transaction of a lifetime, really, right? You can either work with 50 million or maybe with 60 million. Like, it, 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 there's just planning involved. Or, and that's or you can lose half of it if you don't play. If you don't bring. I know plenty of people that we've closed transactions with that haven't even had those conversations for fear that the barrier to entry with some of these private banks and different client, private client managers, that those relationships have a threshold of 5 million or whatever it is. And they're like, well, I don't have it, but when I get it, I'll, I'll talk to them. And then you're like, you close the deal and you're like, Dude, you just lost half your money in this transaction because you didn't structure anything so. Yeah, I mean, you can't recoup that, right? I mean, I ask people to come to me, he's like, okay, I just sold my business. Is there any way to minimize taxes? I'm like, it's a little late. There's other strategies, maybe going forward. But your biggest capital gain is your business. So when you have that, or even you know, with Silicon Valley, when you have stock options and if you're part owner in business, that's similar, right? You have a really low cost base of stock. There's a lot of creativity you can do to keep the most money at the tax. Any more cool. other questions from the audience? I'm, I'm going to ask one more and then maybe we go to final thoughts. So I'll show this one for you. So no one's asked the COVID question, but for me, is now a bad time to sell a business? Good question there. Uh, I guess that final thoughts for me just 
one, plan as far in advance as possible. You know, have those conversations with the bank and the team a year or two years in advance. Even with the economy's going up, down, it depends. It's better to be in that situation to sell that you're planning than to have to for either death, disease, divorce, any of those three Ds where it's, okay, I have to sell it now. So what I mean by even if things outside of the world are maybe not the best, if you planned ahead, planned correctly for it, and as Marcel talked, you know, seeing a wealth advisor, having that plan, there's so many things you can do in advance that even when the outside world may not be the best, it's the right time for you and your company. Versus the opposite where it's, you know, maybe it's perfect outside, but you didn't plan at all and you're in this terrible situation or you sold your company and then you go see Marcel. You know? So it's, it's one of those things. So prep for it and then it's right. I think the rubric, the rubric that was set up, the, the pre-transaction, the transaction, the, the post is really helpful. And the, the more time you can spend before selling on preparing your company to be turnkey, preparing for for what you're for what you're going to actually experience, because you're it's going to be it's going to be painful, but it, it's going to at the end of the mountaintop, it'll all be worth it. But being prepared. And, and having the right team around you, you know, guys like Marcel, guys like guys like Sean on your team, that's going to be the key. Yeah, same thing. It's it's all about planning, right? And and don't think you can do everything. There's there's experts for a reason. I can do what Jerome does or what Sean does, right? And we all have our expertise. So surround yourself with with good experts. They have your best interest at heart. And you know we're you know business owners typically think they can do everything, and they might. But you also got to run a business, right? While in the deal process, so just trust experts and, and just just do your due diligence and stuff to the internet. Uh, you can read everything up there, but you know it, it's really important to engage with us and, and, and start trusting them. And I understand that's a long process, but but if that happens, you know I have worked with uh, several deals where the same team came back together and did, did the deal and get referrals, right? And I think that's key in our business. Wow. Well, thank you everyone. That ends the third panel. I'm going to get Brian to come back and then. All right, thank you. I think I'm being Thank you. Let's hear it for our panel. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.